And now we get to, we have the privilege, the opportunity to continue to worship the Lord by taking up an offering with the ushers. Come forward. Woo! Yes. If you're visiting here, you can probably get the impression that we don't put a whole lot into making sure we have a, a seamless, slick uh, program. We're just real people who love a real Lord and experience real transforming power by Him. Um, I want to pray for the offering. I want to pray for the message that's going to be going forward. And I also want to uh, cover Bethel College in prayer. I don't know if you've been following this uh, in the paper, but you know, up till last year, I was a professor at Bethel and still dear to my heart. And they are really trying to go forward and becoming an anti-racist institution. And uh, as those of you who are familiar with spiritual warfare, you know that you can't go forward without getting flack. And so they've been getting, uh, really have had a, a lot of uh, racial slurs written around the campus and, and uh, some threats that are made to the point where this weekend uh, the administration uh, at least made available space offside of campus that they would uh, fund so people of color wouldn't co- have to come on campus because they felt it was dangerous. And it's a real sad situation. Graduation ceremonies and all going on this weekend. So let's cover all that in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we here cash in our chips as kingdom children and the authority that you have given us in prayer to cover Bethel College uh, at this time, Lord. We uh, pray first and foremost for the safety of all people of color on the campus this weekend, Lord. We just pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would put a tremendous hedge of protection around each and every one of them so that nothing uh, uh, catastrophic uh, or even just mildly damaging would be done to them, Lord. We pray, Lord God, for the people uh, who are involved in this. Uh, Father, we pray for their hearts and for their salvation and pray, God, that you'd be working in them uh, to turn them around, to wake them up. We pray, God, that they would be caught, that the danger would be brought to an end, and that by some way, Lord, in your infinite wisdom, you could uh, bring them to the point where they could recognize you and acknowledge you as being the creator of all human beings who invest all human beings with the dignity of being made in your image, Lord. And, uh, and just, uh, to just touch them, Lord, and give wisdom to the administration as they continue to deal with this uh, area and go forward in uh, building an institution that reflects the values of the kingdom of God. Father, uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to do something that is meaningful by taking the blessing that you've given to us and investing it in eternity. And pray, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be creating in our hearts uh, kingdom values and priorities to be outrageous, uh, generous people that reflect the character of Jesus Christ in all that we do. And as the message goes forward, Lord, we pray that it would have the power and the authority uh, uh, that comes from you, not from me, that is divine, not human. We pray, Lord God, that it would be able to encourage where encouragement is needed, uh, to inform where information is needed, and uh, to convict where conviction is needed. Lord, I surrender that responsibility over to you. I'll just open up my mouth. Have your way, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Uh, We have been dealing, if you've been here for any length of time, we've been talking around uh, stewardship issues, but really about life issues because life is about stewardship. Uh, and there, the, the last several weeks, I have wanted to uh, include some messages that I didn't have a chance to get into as we were uh, embarking on the Growing in the Spirit campaign last week. I, I dealt with one message. And today I want to deal with a, uh, I think this is going to be the final uh, message in this stewardship uh, uh, series but I'm not sure. But I want to deal with a question that I've been asked several times throughout this series, and it's probably uh, one of the central questions that a lot of people, especially raised in the church, would have. 
about stewardship, and that is what about tithing? What about tithing? For those of you who don't come from a church background, tithing is the principle, the practice of giving one-tenth of all that you earn uh, to the work of ministry. And the question is, is is that something that all Christians should be getting involved in? I want to start by saying, we'll get to some passages here in a second, but there is a kind of weirdness, funkiness, uh, oddness, awkwardness that uh, happens for a lot of people. It used to happen to me in an intense way. Whenever you talk about money in church, it's sort of like, you know, here we go. You know, we have to talk about this. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but two in particular I want to mention. One is that when you talk about money in church, you are, you are going after the God mammon that we talked about last week. And there is a principality and power, I believe, that, that uh, just gives energy to this thing such that a lot of people in our culture, even Christians in our culture, when you start talking about money and possessions and stuff, there is that mammon spirit that says, mine, my precious, don't touch it. You can talk about religious stuff, but don't talk about secular stuff. I earned this, it's mine, and, and uh, you know, don't go poking around in that business. And, and, there's, and so there's a defensiveness that happens. You know, it's kind of like walls that go up. Sometimes paranoia that goes, oh, he's after my mammon, he's after my precious, he's trying to get my precious. And that usually is one good indication that you're dealing with an idol. If, if, if you're not willing to subject it to the spotlight of the word of God, there's something fundamentally uh, eschewed. Um, the fact of the matter is that, that Jesus spoke about money, it was the second most frequently topic he talked about. Kingdom of God was first, money was second, hell was third. And so uh, it, it is a spiritual issue. And I think we all know that. Our finances, our stuff is part of the say-so that we have as ministers of the Most High God to make a difference in this world. It's a spiritual issue. And what we do with it and how we spend it and how we save it and how we invest it, that's all spiritual issue. In fact, if you're walking with Christ, there is no non-spiritual issue. It's all spiritual stuff. And so it, it, it needs to be talked about. But one of the reasons, the second reason why I think there's a funkiness that surrounds this topic is because churches have not been particularly good at talking about it. Uh, you know, sometimes they get obsessed with the topic and that's all they talk about. And it's kind of a reputation in some circles that that's what churches do. And maybe you're visiting here for the first time and here, here you are, the first sermon's on tithing and you maybe are thinking, there you go, churches are always talking about money. And I want you to know that, I, when was the last time I, I gave a message on tithing? I think it was about nine years ago or something. We don't always talk about this, but we need to sometimes talk about it. What's especially damaging is sort of the fringe element in Christendom out there, the kind of wacko... Uh, on the fringe where you get people who are, are just weird about this thing. You know, you, you got fundraising techniques. Uh, I'm thinking of some of the TV evangelists and wives with high hairdos on the television <laughs> crying, messing up their mascara with quivering lips saying, and, and begging, and it's, it's just kind of embarrassing. And then you get people who come up with these weird... T- you know, ta- I, I one time got a, a, a target in the mail from an evangelist who's now in prison. And um, uh, he, uh, it, and uh, this is serious, and he said, take 20 steps back, uh, write out your needs on this target, and then it's saying, in Jesus' name, throw the dart. And wherever the dart lands, that need will be met if, here's the big catch, you send a $25 or $15 seed faith offering to his ministry. It's like, uh, someone like me, I, I, I hear that kind of nutso stuff, and I, I want to get a billion, trillion, gazillion miles away from that. I don't want to orbit that. I, it's like, yeah. So there's a tendency not to talk about it at all, which is not a brilliant way to solve a problem. Maybe if we just don't talk about it, it will just be solved. 
We need to talk about it because if for no other reason, then there's wacko stuff being said about it, and we need to be balanced, amen? And everything in, in the Word, we need to be balanced. So what I want to do this morning, very quickly, is do an overview of what the Bible says about tithing. Now, some of what I'm going to say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of you haven't heard before, and I just want to encourage you to have an open mind. Just consider it. I, don't, I never expect people to agree with me on stuff all the time, but, but, but just let God work with it. Um, so I want to do a, a thorough study of tithing in the next 36 minutes uh, uh, from the Word of God. I'm going to look at the Old Testament background, I'm going to look at the New Testament, and then I'm going to bring it all together to ask the question, what is the Christian's relationship today to tithing, this practice of giving one uh, tenth of all that you have to the work of the Lord. The first time, to begin, the first time we find uh, the tithe, the one-tenth percent, uh, the ten percent uh, thing mentioned is in Genesis 14. Abraham just fought this battle and against insurmountable odds, had a victory over all these different pagan kings. And then it says, starting with verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings uh, that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And King Melchizedek of Salem, which later became Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine as a kind of a celebration. He was a priest of God Most High. And this is all we know about Melchizedek. He was a priest of God Most High. We don't know where he came from or anything like that. But he is depicted as being a prototype of uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 7. He's an important figure, though we don't know much about him. He comes out and greets Abraham, and, uh, who at this point his name is Abram. And he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Of all the spoils that he had from this war, he was very wealthy all of a sudden, he gave him one-tenth of everything. Now, I want you to note several things here. Number one, no one told Abram to do this. There was no law about this. This has never been mentioned before. There's no record of God telling him he was supposed to do this. It seems to be sort of a spontaneous thing that, that Abraham just did in response to uh, a meeting Melchizedek. It seems to be that he is here acknowledging the truth of what Melchizedek just said. Blessed be God Most High who has given you all these things. It all belongs to Him. You couldn't have got this victory if it wasn't for the, the Lord being on your side. You had to do due diligence. You had to fight. But God is the one who enabled you to get the victory. And so in acknowledgement that everything belongs to God, Abraham gave one-tenth to uh, Melchizedek. But it wasn't a law. It was something that just sort of spontaneously happened. The second time tithing is mentioned in the Bible is, is found in Genesis 28. And it concerns Jacob. Jacob's on a trip. He comes to Haran. He uh, decides to settle down for the night, goes to sleep, has this bizarre dream of angels descending and ascending on his ladder, you know, Jacob's ladder. And then the Lord appears to him in this dream and says this, Know that I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place but I did not know it. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took this stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place, he renamed the place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And this is a common thing you find in the Bible when, when God does a unique thing and gives a unique character to a person or a place, he changes the name to reflect the essence and the, the mission of the person or place. 
Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give you one-tenth. I will surely give one-tenth to you. Again, note that it's a spontaneous thing. There's no law about that. Jacob just decides to do it. In recognition that God is the one who's going to provide for him. In recognition that God's the one who sustains him. In recognition of the fact that all that he has belongs to God. He says, I'm going to vow one-tenth to you. This is the first time, by the way, in the Bible that someone makes a lifelong vow to do that. Melchizedek, or Abraham did it to Melchizedek one time. But here Jacob says, from here on, this is my commitment. Now, the next time you hear about the tithing in in, in the Bible is in the book of Leviticus. The children of Israel are being formed. They're they're coming out of uh, Egypt, and now they're receiving the book of the law. And here we find in the the book of Leviticus, and then from then on throughout the Old Testament, it is a law of the land that you must give one-tenth of all that you earn uh, to the work of the Lord. More specifically, specifically, you're to give it to the temple. It was part of, it was one-third of the, the Jewish tax in the Old Testament. They were taxed for a number of things. About 30% of their income went to taxation. But one, one-tenth of all that they earned went to support the Levitical priesthood in the temple. They were also expected to, to give free will offerings on occasion, different festivals and whatnot. And then there were times where they had major building campaigns like the, the tabernacle uh, or the temple later on, Solomon's temple, where they had free will offerings and that's how they built those things. What they were saying is over and above what is the law to give, out of your own generosity, give to this. Kind of like what we're doing and asking people to, over and beyond your regular commitment that sustains this ministry, uh, you know, be, follow God in contributing to the, the youth center and, and the whole Growing in the Spirit campaign. We don't want you taken from the essentials to give to that. That's over and beyond that. Well, that's a precedent in, in the Old Testament. That's why people sometimes say, we're now going to take up our tithes and offerings. The tithe was the 10% offerings was over and beyond that. God was very intense and, and intent about maintaining this law throughout the Old Testament. In fact, that brings us to uh, the passage that's most quoted about the tithe. It gets preached on quite a bit. It's from Malachi chapter 3. It's probably the verse that a lot of you thought of when I said we're going to talk about tithing, and you got nervous all of a sudden because you were sure that I was going to preach out of Malachi 3. Uh, but here's what the Lord says. It shows something about how serious he took this tithing principle. He says, Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, well, how are we robbing you? The Lord says, in your tithes and offering. If you don't give the 10%, you're robbing me. And if you're not giving what I'm leading you to give in your offerings, you're robbing me. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Talking about food to feed the poor and to, feed and to support the Levitical priesthood. And thus put me to the test. The only time the Bible ever says this. It's not saying tempt me, but, but rather try me. Uh, uh, live in these principles and see if I'm not faithful. Put me to the test here. Says the Lord of hosts, See, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Not only will I lift the curse, but there's going to be an outrageous blessing. Now the question is, uh, what is the Christian's relationship to all of that, that 10% law? Uh, is, it still, uh, is, it, is it still applicable today? 
And so what I want to do is look at the, uh, the Christian's overall relationship to the law and then look more particularly at the Christian's relationship uh, to money and, and uh, to giving a- as we study this. What I'm going to submit to you is this. I believe that God is still saying, test me. Uh, I-, I will honor my promises uh, financially and otherwise. Uh, I believe that the principle is still there, that, that there's a, a blessing found when we obey God. I do not believe that the motivation for that is to, maintain, is to hit uh, a, a legal 10% rule, for reasons I'm going to give now. When we turn to the New Testament, there's an entirely different thing going on. What we learn in the New Testament is that there's two reasons why God gave the law. And follow me, this is important stuff. Because it's not just about the law of the 10%, it's about the law of everything. What is the Christian's relationship to the law? The law was given for two reasons. Number one, it was given to give us uh, the moral teaching, the ethical teaching shows us what it, what, what, it, what it looks like to walk with God, what it looks like to honor God in our life, what it looks like uh, to love, because all of the law is summed up in the commandment to love, to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Sums it all up. And the Old Testament shows us what that looks like. There are some uh, idiosyncratic elements to the Old Testament that pertain just to Israel. Some of the regulations about, you know, the the sacrifices and stuff like that. But the ethical teaching is something that, it's a guideline for us to see what love looks like. There's a second reason why the law is given, and that's this. The law can tell us what we're supposed to do, but it can't empower us to do it. It's just an ought, a should, that has no power to it. And as such, what it ends up doing, and this is part of the God-intended role of it, what it ends up doing is showing us that we can't do it on our own. And that way it leads us to Christ because it convicts us. So Paul says, for example, in Romans 7, that the law is given to expose sin, to show how sinful we are. The law is given to actually increase sin, Paul says. So the law is given to drive us to Christ by showing us our need for a Savior. It tells us how we should live, but it also shows us that we cannot live that way perfectly on our own. We need forgiveness and we need empowerment from a Savior. Amen? And that way it leads us to Christ. This is why, incidentally, Jesus, at various points in his ministry, even though he was the bringer of grace, he actually intensifies the law. In fact, he intensifies the law because he is the bringer of grace. He says, you know, it's not just a matter of obeying the law externally. You've got to obey it in every thought that you think. It's not enough that you, uh, that you don't commit adultery. No, if you think about it, you're already guilty of adultery. It's not enough that you uh, just don't fornicate. If you have lust in your heart, you've already fornicated. It's not just a matter of you not murdering your brother or sister. If you have hatred in your heart, if you say or even think you fool, you're already in danger of hell according to the law. And every idle thought that you're going to think and every idle word that you're going to speak, it puts you in danger of hell if you're living according to the law. And the reason he says all of that is to show us our need for a Savior and our need for empowerment from the inside. The law doesn't do it. Now, what you also have throughout the Old Testament is an anticipation of a day when things will be radically different. Uh, An anticipation of a time when God is going to do a different kind of a thing where he's going to live and change people from the inside out. And so you have, for example, in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord says, I will put my law, looking at a future age, a future era, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. It's going to be part of who they are. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what happens on the day of Pentecost. 
The new era begins on the day of Pentecost. And I say all of that so we have an understanding of what our relationship to the law is. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out, and, and God himself takes residence in each, in, in each one of us. And now, in this time, all who put their trust in Christ and admit that they can't do it on their own, now all of those who do that are given a new heart. They're given a new mind. They're given a new spirit. There's a, there's a, a new set of desires, praise God, that, that begin to arise in, the, in this person. There's a, a new disposition, a new perspective on life. The things that used to seem so important don't seem so important any longer. And things that you used to just ignore all of a sudden seem to be monumentally important. And the way you look at people and the way you treat your enemies and the way you understand yourself, it all begins to change because you've got a new heart going on. You've got a new mind. In fact, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, uh, they are a new creature. They're a new creation. Behold, all things are new, and the old things have entirely passed away. There's a new you sitting here today. The you that's in Christ Jesus. The you that's been redeemed. The you that's been restored. And I'm sure that your mind hasn't caught up with that reality yet, so I'm sure your feelings haven't caught up with that reality, so I'm sure your behavior hasn't perfectly caught up with that reality, but it's real nonetheless because of your faith in Jesus Christ. God's changing you from the inside out. Uh, God himself dwells within you. God himself. I said God himself dwells within you. I'm talking big God, not little angel God. God, capital G, creator, capital C, Holy Spirit, capital H and capital S. He dwells within you. And see, what, 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 what God's doing here is, is this. He's shown us very clearly that we can't do it on our own through our own striving and through our, through our own efforts. And that opens us up now to be receptive to him saying, hey, would you like me to come in and give you a hand? Uh, how about if I just kind of live within you and I start to change you from the inside out and, and, and you know, rework this thing, uh, you know, uh, from the inside out? Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis gives this analogy in, in Mere Christianity. He says, it's kind of like a school teacher who's been trying to teach the kids how to write cursive, you know, in fourth grade or whatever, on a blackboard. And so what the teacher does now is it's not working. So the teacher now comes and puts her or his hand over the child's hand and says, here's how you do it. Just follow me. Don't try to, just, just, just let me show you how to do this. And God is, is, is t- wearing us like a glove, so to speak, teaching us what it is to live in outrageous love, what it is to love God, love ourselves and love our neighbor as ourselves, what it is to live in righteousness. And so God himself comes and takes residence inside of us. Uh, God, the, the, you have within you right now uh, the love that is God himself. You've got the peace that characterizes God himself. You've got the joy that characterizes God himself. You've got the power that characterizes God himself. They never had that in the Old Testament, but you've got it by his grace, by his love. It's dwelling within you. And see, that entirely changes everything. Now it's not a matter of trying on our own effort to do a bunch of oughts and shoulds and do's motivated by threats and and guilt and manipulation, trying like, oh, I got to do that or God's not going to like me. Now the motivation is all from the inside out. We we aren't trying to do something to get something. Now we're, we're, we're motivated to do something because we are something. You see, it, it, it's, a, it's an entirely different kind of a motivation. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that if anyone's led by the Spirit of Christ, they're, they're, they're not under the law. They're not under the law. Does that mean that we're supposed to be lawless? Like a bunch of kids who parents leave, they say, oh good, now we can stay up late. Uh, you know, like, oh good, there's no law, now we can do whatever we want. Well, see, God's in you and God doesn't think that way. God's not a lawless God. It's a denial of your true identity to think that way. You're not under the law. What it means is this. 
You're not motivated by the law. You're not motivated by externals. It's no longer a matter of you striving to, to obey the externalities of the law. Rather, it's a matter of you living to express the truth of who you already are in Christ. The motivation is entirely different. And that's why I believe that uh, holding up a, a 10% rule that a one-size-fits-all kind of a thing to people is uh, encouraging the wrong motivation. Like, like here's the, the law. you got to pay your religious dues. This is what it costs you to go to church. This is what it costs you to be saved. Uh, uh, that's not the right motivation. It may be the right percentage for you, but not for that reason. Which is why, though the New Testament talks a lot about money, it does, it never mentions the tithe as a rule that's binding on Christians. It's true that Jesus mentions the tithe to Pharisees when he's reaming them out in Matthew 23 because they're doing it wrong, but they're Jews who are still living under the temple taxation system, so they're supposed to give that. But as a law, it's never mentioned as applying to believers generally. What you do find is, is principles, principles of living and giving, which aren't oughts and shoulds out there that we're supposed to chase after, but rather they guide us to help us learn what it is to yield to the Spirit of God within us and to grow to be in the image of Christ. An entirely different way of thinking about things. I'm going to run through seven of those principles right now very fast. Some of this is review, some of this is new. But I want you to put your thinking caps on. This is important and stuff for us to get down. Here's what it looks like to be yielded to the Spirit of God in terms of giving, in terms of motivation, in terms of content and all of that. Uh, so seven principles. Principle number one, follow Christ's example. Paul, while doing a fundraiser, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, says, you know the generous act. Think about, remember this, before you write out that check, remember the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Here's what our giving and here's what our living is supposed to look like. We are, to be a Christian means you're discipled by Jesus Christ. You're, you're mentored by Jesus Christ. The goal of life is to look like him, to do what he does. So Paul says, no, just keep your eyes on Jesus. He was God, but he surrendered that to become a human being. He was, had divine prerogatives, but he laid them aside so that he would uh, immerse himself in our humanity. He's all holy. But he took upon himself our sin. He's perfectly righteous, but he took upon himself our degradation. He's exalted, but he took upon himself our shame. He's united with the Father in the bliss of perfect love, but experienced the hell of God's separation on the cross for your sake. Though he was rich in every possible way, he became poor in every possible way. Think about that and go thou and do likewise. That's our model. Our life is to be characterized by that. And uh, so our, our, our giving is to be Christ-like. It's, to, it's to, to grow in the semblance, in the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, secondly, giving is to be voluntar- voluntary and joyful, according to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9 again, each of you must give as you've made up your mind. Note that. Paul doesn't make up his, their mind for them. He doesn't give a percentage to them. He says, you must make up your own mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion... For God loves a cheerful giver. And the word there, as I've mentioned before, is hilarious. You see, God, it's not a matter. It shouldn't be a matter of, of, of this kind of like, ah, oh, shucks, here's the offering thing, or doggone it, you know, I, I, I know that I have to give, uh, you know, this percentage to the church, or got to give this percentage. It's not supposed to be like that. Uh, giving, 
Jesus, no one twisted his arm. It wasn't done reluctantly or under compulsion for him to come down to earth here. You know, rather, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of living eternally with you or me, the joy of expressing love, that is life itself right there. The joy is what led him to make the sacrifice, and so it is in the believer, because the spirit of that same Jesus Christ resides within you. When you get into this loop, you find that it's, it's the joy, the joy of, of, of life itself, fullness of life, life and generosity that gets expressed. And so there's a joy in giving. You see the vision. You, you, you see that you're, you get to make a difference in this world in the kingdom of God. And the joy of that leads you to become a Christ-like giver. It's not a matter of, oh, shucks, doggone it. Oh, we could really use that over here. And now oh, I can't get the car. Doggone Chuck Swindoll says, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grouch. Uh, And that may be true, but God would rather that you don't stay a grouch, but rather uh, get into the the, the joy of voluntary Christ-like giving. One of the saddest things about people who are raised in the church, in churches that that, that, uh, kind of treat giving as taxation, is that they never learn. They only know how to respond to guilt and manipulation and the oughts and the shoulds, and they never learn the joy of doing it for free. And if they would learn the joy of doing it for free, they probably would give a whole lot more than they're giving out of reluctance and compulsion and taxation. Find the joy of, of, of the Spirit of God inside of you, teaching you how to be an outrageous giver. Number three, giving is to be disciplined. Everybody say disciplined. Oh, that's a good word. That's a good word. It's not a bad word. Sometimes people think that if you're walking in the Spirit, that means you're just kind of loosey-goosey, emotional, haphazard. You know, if it's really spiritual, you didn't think about it till the moment it happened, you know. Uh, well, Paul has a very different perspective on this. You know, it's, I can tell you as one who likes to preach under the anointing that it's not a matter of me getting up here saying, okay, God, I didn't think about this at all till right now. What do you want me to talk about? Uh, there, there's a discipline that's got to go into putting together a sermon. In fact, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Read Galatians 5, uh, 5.22. There's no incongruity here with being disciplined and being led by the Spirit. In fact, there's an incongruity by being led by the Spirit and not being disciplined. Here's what Paul says. On the first day of the week, that's when you got your paycheck in the ancient world. In other words, he's saying, as soon as you get your paycheck, each of you, apparently, it's going to include everybody, at least everyone who can, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Note again, Paul doesn't tell him what that percentage should be. It's according to your income. Saving it up. Don't touch it. So that when I come, no collections will, will, need to, uh, will have to be made. What Paul is getting at here is this. He doesn't want the situation where he comes and says, okay, let's take up an offering. And then everyone goes, oh, yeah, okay, here, let's see what I got. Um, mm, okay, oh, oh look at I got, I, got, I got $2. No, and then it's like, Lord, do you want me to give one of those dollars or two? Uh, he, he's saying, Paul's saying, think about this. Make up your mind. Make a commitment ahead of time. Be disciplined about this. Take it off the top on the first day of the week. In the Old Testament, it's, it was always the first fruits that were to given, be given. God doesn't get leftovers. And if you don't take it off the top, what you're going to be doing is giving God leftovers. But we're supposed to give in a Christ-like way, and Christ ain't no leftover. God wasn't up there saying, hey, is there anyone who's got nothing else to do, maybe got fired from your previous job, wants to go down and save humanity? Anybody here, uh, you know, who's got some spare time? 
No, he didn't give us leftovers. He himself came down. He gave his very, very best. He gave us all. And then he says, go thou and do likewise. God, if, if, if we in fact are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it ought to be reflected in how we live and in how we steward our resources. And, he, and so what Paul is saying is take it off the top. He doesn't give him a percentage. You've got to pray about this. Make up your own mind. Do it voluntarily, not under compulsion, but make up your mind, set it aside right off the top, save it, don't touch it. If you don't do that, I can promise you that all you'll have is leftovers and there won't be many left over. The God of this age in the, in, in the mammon uh, is, is strong and persistent and there's always things that arise up. You know, the, the things you didn't anticipate. The car broke down, the tires went flat, the, the engine is, is sputtering. And, and, and I'm just telling you about my life this last week. Uh, you know, there's, and if you have teenagers, good luck. You become a perpetual money machine where it's like you just give it out where you wonder where it went. And Sunday comes along and you got 18 cents left over. Uh, the, the Lord is saying at the beginning, make up your mind and put it aside. Be disciplined in it. That requires thinking about it ahead of time. That requires budgeting for it. It means knowing what you can afford, being led by the Spirit of God, taking it out and not touching it. And then the rest you use uh, to, to, to uh, live off of. Remember this, folks, and, and this is something that I'm growing in. It ain't your money, it's His. It's His. And that means. We're just the stewards here. What would you think of somebody who put someone in, in charge of a trust fund and then they didn't come up with a budget? It's kind of like, well, whatever happens, happens. Uh, is that responsible stewardship? I don't care how rich you are or how poor you are or how middle class you are. You need to think about how you steward this stuff. And that takes some discipline. What goes where? So, you know, you start finding out how much you're giving to this. Sometimes it's surprising to find that out. Amazing how much goes to fast food and movies and things like that. Well, is that what, is that what the owner of the uh, trust fund that you're stewarding wants you to be doing? Just be thinking about that. But the first fruits, the, the top, uh, belongs to God. Number four, give according to your means. The Macedon- or, or uh, give according to your means, Second Corinthians chapter 8. If the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Here again, Paul doesn't give a percentage here. This is where he would do it. You know, it's like, okay, now remember, everyone give according to 10%. Rather, it's a proportion thing. As God has blessed you, you set stuff aside to bless others. For some, 10% may be too much. Uh, if people who aren't getting their food, clothing, shelter, basic care, their basic needs being taken care of or don't have an income at all, well, then there's nothing to give there. For others who have much more than they need, 10% may be too little, but according to your income, give. Remember this. What moves the kingdom is not the amount you give, but the blood you shed in giving it. That's the mustard seed principle. It's when the people of God have the life of Christ flowing through them and therefore live sacrificial lives like Christ did. We replicate the sacrifice of Christ in our lives. That's what moves the kingdom. Money's just an expression of this. The widow... The widow gave more than all the rich people, Jesus said, because uh, she, she gave a penny, they gave thousands, but she gave all she had. She, she bled in giving that, and that's what moves the kingdom of God. God doesn't expect an equal amount, not at all, or even an equal percentage, but he does want an equal sacrifice and calls us to be living in that. And number five, see, see giving as a privilege, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Macedonians begged Paul earnestly for the privilege of sharing in his ministry to the saints. And one of these days, that's going to happen when someone comes up and says, can I please give more? Please, please let me give more. And I'll go, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, no he, they begged Paul. You see, 
if we're understanding it rightly, it is a privilege. There are people in this congregation who don't have the basic food, housing, shelter, care taken care of. Okay? But the majority of people in this congregation have that taken care of, and we have more than we need. And, um, uh, and that puts us in a privileged position to be blessers, to be blessers. Uh, do you, you know, think about what I said last week. There's no reason, there's nothing we did in a pre-existent state to deserve, to warrant, to merit, to win the right to be born in or at least live in a wealthy country like this. As opposed to the kid who I saw six years ago digging through a garbage heap looking for a morsel of food in Haiti. Uh, that means you just got lucky. And the question is how much you're going to cash in on your good luck for yourself or how much you're going to use it for, for, for the ministry. I'm not saying it doesn't make anyone feel guilty because God blesses us so that we can enjoy it. We talked about that last week. But there needs to be some awareness of this. We're, we're, we're blessed. We're blessed. We get to be on the giving side of the equation. Uh, we get to use this otherwise useless mammon and, and, and exchange it for eternal currency, the currency of love, the currency of the kingdom of God. Do you know how many people on this planet would love to be in a position where they not only have their basic needs, but they get to be givers? It's a privilege and an opportunity as well as a responsibility. We're lucky to be in this position. It's a privilege. That's why I sometimes say... We get to now take up an offering. We get, if we were in Sudan, I don't think I could put it like that. But see, we're just blessed, and so to whom much is given, much is required, and we're, it's an opportunity. That's why Paul says it's more blessed to give than to receive. We're blessed. Number six, give with a concern for justice. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 through 14, Paul says, I do not mean that there should be relief for others, but pressure on you. I'm not trying to make you poor and them rich. But it's a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need. What you find throughout the Bible, there's a different sermon I'm going to preach on this in the near future, I think. But, but what you find is God in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, and throughout the New Testament has a profound concern for the poor. For those who don't have their basic need for shelter, food, clothing, care being taken care of. Every human being is created in the image of God, no ifs, ands, or buts. And everyone has a basic right to live, uh, to survive. That's part of the human dignity. And one of the jobs of the church is to make sure that that is happening. For too long, we've defaulted to Uncle Sam, you know, and said, oh, the government will take care of you, or the Democrats, or the Republicans, or the Libertarians, or I don't care who, but that's the job of the church, somebody say amen. That's the responsibility that God puts upon us. Now, we can't make the world a fair place, but we're to live and steward our resources with that in mind. We're to take care of the poor in our congregation. And here's an area that we've been growing in as we're now looking at ways that we can, uh, uh, we can, without relying on the government, provide affordable housing for people and provide food to those who don't have enough food. And our budget on this uh, for this next year is going to double because the needs are growing. And that's part of, of, of what the church is called to do. But not just here, but everywhere. Live with a concern for justice. Some people have had been a little critical of, of, of us building this youth center and, and paying off the debt to fund it. And then at the same time, funding eight ministries in St. Paul to feed the hungry and to home, house the homeless and to get people off of, of drug addiction. And then this thing in, 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 uh, in, in Minneapolis. And then building a hospital in Cambodia. They said, you know, shouldn't you kind of be more centered? And what I want to tell you is that this is the center. This is the center. We can't do the one without doing the other. We've got to be concerned with justice issues. There are people over there who don't have their basic needs met. And so we don't want to just focus on ourselves. We want to have a broader perspective. Steward your finances with a concern for justice. And number seven, give with expectation. 
And that's simply the principle I've said over and over again, and that is this. God is still saying, test me. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. This isn't a magical formula, but it is a principle in life. In fact, Paul says in his last verse that that you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. The, The universe is wired to favor those who are generous. You just, you just get happy. You just get happy. There's nothing but nothing but nothing more fulfilling, more enjoyable, more, more exuding with life than, than, than living in generosity, giving it away. It, 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 it's, just, it's, it's life. It, you're now living like God lives. Out of love, you just give it away. And when you do that, it comes back to you. You don't give it to get it come back to you. But it does come back to you because God loves that kind of heart, so now you have more to give away. And, and it comes back on you in a lot of different ways. So let me wrap this all up here. I, I, what is the Christian's relationship to tithing? This thing about tithing. On the one hand, I want to say emphatically that I, I don't believe for a second, there's no precedent for saying that it's a law. In fact, I think the spirit of the New Testament is against it being a law. And therefore, I don't think it should be used as sort of a litmus test for whether you're right with God or not. Uh, you know, holding this up here. If you make the 10%, you're fine. If you don't make it, you're not fine. You know, you may not be making it, and you're fine because right now that, that's where you're at, and God's working in your heart, and that's where you are financially or whatever. You may be making your 10%, but God's asking you for the last three years to be doing 30%. So you're not doing fine. There's no law about this. There is, however, this is the second point, a principle, a pattern. Even before it was a law in the Old Testament, there was a pattern. It just sort of appears. And that says something. Here's what it says to me. And I want you to try this on. I I see this as sort of a a divinely provided benchmark uh, to help us be protected from the pull of mammon. And what I mean by that is this. For most people, now if you don't have food, clothing, shelter, and whatever, that's a different issue. That has to be done first. Uh, You have to live. If you die, you know, you're not going to be giving anything to anybody. So so live. But, uh, But for those who have more than they need, we need to be thinking about this. I think it's a principle that God gives us, not a, not a legal rule, but a principle to, to make sure that we're not being sucked into the pool of mammon. If I can't give 10% of my income, I, I, I have more than I need. I, I have my shelter, food, clothing, and care is taken care of. Uh, if, I, if, if I can't give 10%, that is a sign to me that something is maybe perhaps not blocking, is blocking the flow of the spirit of my life. Uh, I, I'm, my priorities are getting off. Something's wrong, you see? And so I need, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a flag that tells me, go back and check your priorities, your values. Are you hearing God, you see? A number of years ago, my wife and I decided, we didn't always, we weren't always tithers, but we decided to, to test God, to put this to the test. And it wasn't a legal rule. We didn't feel out of shame. wasn't guilt. wasn't like we're afraid of going to hell. We just thought this is something that we feel we've, we, we've now grown to, to do. And so we did this, and we couldn't believe how immediately, uh, immediately there was a change. It was, it was, uh, it, it comes back to you. It comes back to you. And there was this, this joy. You kind of grow in this joy of being a blesser. And in fact, as you grow in that, then the, the rule thing, the 10% just kind of disappears, and you move on beyond that. You know, uh, where it's like, what, what would happen if we tested God on 20%? Uh, you know, and that can be a scary thing. That can be like, well, you know, and, and you get in positions where, where you're saying, okay, Lord, uh, you know, the, the water from the rock and the manna from heaven would be nice right about now. <laughs> you know, but, but that, there's an adventure to that, and God never leaves you high and dry. 
one way or another, one way you get taken care of. And when you're faithful in little, he makes you faithful in much. And it's like, oh good, now I get to share in, 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 uh, abundantly in every good work. And you get into that flow. And now you're finding what the joy in the life is, is all about. It's not a law. It's not a law, but there, there's a pattern there. And, and the, the spirit of that, whatever percentage you feel led to, to, to commit, I encourage you to commit it. Put it aside. Don't touch it. And grow in this cycle of giving, not just financially, but in every area of your life, your time, your resources, your energy, your attention, become Christ-like and finding out that life's about giving, not just receiving. Praise God. Would you close your eyes? Pray for a moment here. I, I would like to ask the prayer team to come forward at this time. And if you have any need whatsoever to be prayed for, I encourage you to spend a moment after the service and have that prayed for. Uh, maybe it's financial stuff. Maybe this sermon has landed on you. Maybe you've never been a giver. The spirit of mammon would be telling you right now, oh, he wants my precious. But I promise you, I don't. This is for your good. To find the joy, the freedom in this. Uh, if you need to, get prayer for this. If you're here this morning and, you, and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and entered into a personal relationship, I encourage you to come forward after the service. And to my right, your left, there are some people who would be happy to explain that to you and pray with you and start a new life. And I want to end with this one question. I, who here this morning will either reconsecrate or consecrate for the first time all that you earn and all that you are to the Lord? You just submit it to Him and say, Lord, it's yours. Uh, lead me into how I should steward that. If you're willing to make that commitment before God, not anyone else, everyone close your eyes, but just make that commitment and all by raising your hand. You're going to commit to laying it all before him. Lay it all before him. Amen. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would be installing us a love for you and for your work that changes the way we think about everything. Make us faithful stewards of your resources, Lord. And build your kingdom through us. I pray that every person in this auditorium would discover the joy of being an outrageous giver the joy of that. For those who don't have their basic needs met, we pray for them, Lord God, and we pray that this body would grow in being a body that can sustain them so that they then can eventually learn to be on the giving end of the equation as well. We go out of here under your anointing, committed to be your stewards in Jesus' name, and all God's people said one last time, amen. God bless you. Go out and be good stewards. The altar is open. Amen.